You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. All right, so I know you're in a new location now. You got a new backdrop over there. I see you don't have the, uh, we got to get that calling trophy trophy back up. How was the, how was the move? Are you settled? Is everything good? Um, yeah, just talk about that a little bit. Cause I know I personally haven't heard much and that's a, that's a lot of work to go through. Moving sucks. I'll yeah. tell you that moving sucks. It's not my favorite thing to do. Um, no, all settled now. Just, you know, if you've, if you've ever moved, I assume most people in their life have moved at least once, but, um, you get to this point where you, you move everything in, you set yourself up in your new, your new home, your new place, and then there's like four or five boxes left and you just go, you know what, I, I don't know where I want the stuff, can't be bothered. Probably either A, I think, time to get rid of it. It's not necessary if you don't know where it is or where you want to put it. Uh, but I've gone with option B at the moment, which is it's just still sitting kind of off to the side in the kind of like dining area. So, you know, I'll sort that out at some some later point. But no, good. Got to, got to find some artwork that I want to fit here. I might rearrange this sort of like second bedroom office space a little bit i have some like space off to my my left here that you can't see which has uh my my plants and my trophies at the moment in my books so mm. i need to work on that so i just haven't gotten around to putting the trophy up yet i mean but they're both sitting here i've got the nationals and the calling trophy city here but they're just they're they're sort of just shrouded in dust at the back yeah after. yeah same actually yeah yeah i totally understand that i feel you just sitting over there and kind of in the corner um, anyway, well, once the world's trophies there, I'll I'll get that organized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I just had space for it, I'd probably put them up, but I I can't. Um, how about your week in flesh and blood? Yeah, uh, really good week in flesh and blood. Where as we record right now, we are two weeks, or I, I leave in fifteen days to the world championship. Um, by the time this pod drops, it'll be two weeks out from worlds, which is super exciting. It's getting it's getting pretty real, right, Brendan? I know, you know, for for you, it's a bit different this time but i'm sure equally as nerve-wracking with uh, what you're about to do and for me i think it's just about locking in decks uh getting in reps working out this this med has been interesting and preparing for in a way three formats i'd say i've done less preparation for draft this this time but um on sunday i went and did uh, a few drafts with some some very you know some well-known uh, australian locals had the, the tall to me was there fluke and boxes there i know you love the tall to me uh, Brendan, you guys are, are good pals, so so he was there. Uh, we did did some drafts, and uh, then I got some blitz testing in, uh, which is is also interesting. So just yeah, just getting ready. Not long now, and it, it creeps up very quickly, especially with with life thrown in as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yourself? <laughs> I mean, I've been playing a lot, a lot, uh, a lot of Talshar, so I'm playing about like five hours a day now. Um, my schedule is a bit more free than it was before I went on my trip. Let me dispel the myth that. Uh, that is uh, casting is anything as any anywhere close to as stressful and as nerve wracking as playing because it is not at all. Um, maybe, I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, maybe maybe if that was something that I uh, that I guess made you uncomfortable, but for me, it's uh, it's definitely I don't feel the weight right that I would if I was going into a three format kind of world championship, despite how much we've been preparing and despite how prepared I sort of would feel um, at this point for that format. It's still you know. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there when you got Blitz, Class Constructed, and Uprising. Um, I've got upcoming this weekend, so leaving on Friday for the Ohio Battle Harden, which I will also be casting and not playing. Uh, joined by Flake DeMarco, DeMarco and Carmer. Derek Oswald is his name. Um, but yeah, very excited for that. Playing a lot of fab. And two weeks. Two weeks, like you said. It's actually not very long until I completely dip out of the, uh, of the testing process here. And sort of go on my uh, go on my path as a caster. Try to talk to some more players, get some more stories, get the backgrounds, and yeah, get ready for the job that I'll actually be filling at that tournament. Yeah, I'm excited to see what you what you're going to bring to the table. And it's I don't know if people will really realize this because obviously you are picking up the casting role this time around, but you've been super involved with the testing process as well for for the group that we're testing with this time around, which is um, which has been cool. So you know we we're indebted to you. I, I think. Be interesting to see. I, I mean, you're going to sit in that booth and you're going to feel pretty across this meter, I think, which is um, which is cool. And, you know, I just want to shout out there. You just got uh, Chama's name right, uh, Derek. He must feel like you guys are best friends because Brendan notoriously names, not your I'm strong I'm very suit. good with names, actually. I, 
It would have been very unusual for me to forget that name. Um, anyway, Hayden, we've got some pretty interesting news. So the, <laughs> I like it. I think we talked about last week is the, the dynasty spoiler season originally set to occur. Um, not now, uh, <laughs> thought it was going to be in like that condensed period usually is, but it seems we've been drip fed some, uh, some of these Marvel spoilers. Um, but why don't you start us off with, I think one of the most exciting spoilers and surely one of yeah. the more exciting ones for you. <laughs> I'm pretty pumped. I actually thought just before we jumped in, I thought maybe you could just give us a uh, a top line because we, we do have a guest jumping on the show today after we we talk spoilers, we talk some news, we've got a great kind of cookout question. And then when we get into the main topic of the pod, uh, it's a it's a, a pretty great main topic, Brendan. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who's joining us and what we're going to talk about and then uh, we can jump into some awesome Dynasty spoilers. Yep. Returning guests that we all know, uh, Mr. Michael Hamilton will be joining us. We're going to be talking about fab mathematics. Doesn't sound... Super exciting if you don't like math, but this is really the the core behind basic flesh and blood. And I think it's a concept, uh, probably the most important concept um, to, I guess, if you're a beginner or intermediate player is to really understand the value of cards, the value of your hand, how to play turn cycles and how to get the most value um, above uh, against your opponent. I think Michael Hamlet is absolute master when it comes to fab math and the way he breaks it down. Um, and a good example is I was listening to the Manor podcast and I heard Roger Bodie talk about Zealous Belting and the Sledge Vanvelheim. I thought that was one. He said, this is one of the most powerful things that the Guardian can do. Can do. And uh, Michael Hamilton quickly rebuttaled by simply pointing out the math and seeing that it was actually almost identical to just two-card Wounded Bolt. Um, but these are things, they are basic in their nature, but I know for me, it's, uh, it's a concept that escapes me more than it should, and I think kind of a, a core lesson in fab math is something that everybody can use uh, t- to level up in flesh and blood. Mm. Yep, definitely one of my favorite topics, and who better to, to come on and um, talk about it than someone who's been utilizing it to, uh, I'd say, quite a bit of success recently. So a little bit, uh, yeah. Before that, Brennan, the news and dynasty preview season continues to be now. Apparently. So we've had some awesome previews and spoilers uh, come out from different content creators around the world who have been uh, granted, you know, this kind of early release, you know, early uh, access to show these awesome marvels, uh, which has kind of been driving the, the, the hype. I think it's pretty smart, to be honest. I thought when I saw the first few, I was like, oh, interesting, you know, we're going to get a couple now and then we won't hear anything for two weeks and then it'll be preview, preview week and it'll all just flood in. But I think quite quite a cool way that's been done this time is these marvels have all been sent around the world to to different creators who have been able to and, and players and, and not just content creators actually in this fashion and and to release and, and show these cards um and that's the kind of previews that we're getting up until the actual preview week starts and then it's going to hit right like we're going to have preview after preview day after day right for that sort of really condensed period so i think this makes a lot of sense but yeah i mean let's talk about some of them uh rock you can't go past rock brute weapon rock <laughs> i love that the type of the weapon type is rock as well like it's called yeah. rok rock the weapon type is rock with a c two-handed brute weapon uh if you haven't seen this card once per turn action three three cost attack and you can only activate rock if you have no cards in hand damage that would be dealt by rock can't be prevented uh what a cool card i really like this card a lot brendan yeah, so give me a use case of this card. How do you set this up? How are you swinging this card? Like, what what it like what immediately comes to mind for you with how to utilize rock? Yeah, so you, it's important to know you you can't like if you have a card in hand, a blue card in hand, you can't pitch that card to activate rock because you have a card in hand, and the cost happens on uh, on on activation of the ability. So you can't activate the ability with the card in hand. So. The ways to do it is to have floating resources and then find a resource from an onboard ability is, is, a, is one good way to do it. So, uh, you know, you could use something like Deep Blue, for instance. Take your last card in your hand, Deep Blue, come in with Rock. You could pop an energy potion with one resource floating from overpitching on the previous card. You could, uh, you know, overpitch, have two floating. Tunic is probably going to be a common way we see Rock used. You know, um, the Talisman that allows you to, to, to pitch. There's a few different ways to get extra resources and be over, over the resource count um overpitch etc and be able to activate rock and i think we're going to see i think the initial kind of look is going to be like oh, okay let's like let's throw some barrage and beat downs in the mix let's pop an energy potion and a tunic and let's like come in with a big rock turn you know i have a four card hand they're all you know i've set up for all barrage and beat downs or all intimidate effects whatever it is or all pump effects primeval bellows things like this and then we we dump them in and we come and we smack with rock as as, uh, as people like to say <laughs> yeah i think deep blue is a pretty good way of activating this and uh, I immediately see it probably seeing success in Blitz the most, but um, yeah, maybe we could see more cards to help you facilitate having 
these resources while having no cards that makes rock more viable. Also, I assume that a lot of the time you might be rolling scabbies to be able to swing it, but maybe not. <laughs> um, I think it's a really cool card. Again. I also think that yeah, maybe. The- oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was sorry. I was going to say maybe going in attacks could be the way to do it, right? As well, like you you use your hand beforehand. You just keep a four or five card hand and you just bomb it on the table effectively and and get it all down. But I agree with you. I, I think Blitz will see it first because this is hard to set up, right? And it might be a one to like once per game kind of thing to be reliable. Yeah, I do just want to point out that these sort of Marvel card frames are quite good looking. <laughs> uh, Flesh and Blood seems to step it up. Sort of set by set, you know, last we had the Marvel Dragons, which were unbelievably gorgeous. And now these these pieces of equipment, they look amazing. Um, and I think you know, increased customization in this game is definitely a plus. So I think that, yeah, these Marvel equipment are wins, wins for me so far. Let's uh, move to the next one. We got, uh, we're not going to go through all of them. We just picked out a, a few that we do want to talk through and uh, very interesting, I think. Uh, another one is a... Blazing Yori. So Blazing Yori uh, is a ninja equipment chest, defense one, and uh, while it's defending on the chain link, while it's defending on chain link four or higher, it has plus four defense and it has blade break. So you're only going to need to defend with this once. But if it's on chain link four or higher, it's going to be defending five. So it's a little little mini husk, if you like, uh, if it defends late into the chain link. Very interesting card, Brendan. I think it's going to be interesting to see the the utility of this card because not many decks present. Or, or more chain links other than i would say ninja mirrors typically yep fi this is uh seems like it's tailor made Dash, for maybe yeah tailor made for uh lava burst <laughs> just like clean blocks lava burst uh on the fourth chain link i think that this is actually i i remember seeing in like a, a group chat people being a bit underwhelmed by this but i think that this is like immediately uh in most ninja decks as an equipment slot if there's any sort of ninja mirrors uh, especially the five, the version of five that we see running around right now and i would be very surprised if this doesn't make almost every uh ninja blitz list as a piece of equipment to have access to so i think it's a i honestly think this is a staple i i agree with you i think the chest slot is super interesting because it's um the chest slot is a really powerful slot and i think it's one that alice has been really careful with and tunic is such a such a staple right but i think that was that was done on purpose you know like give this really strong staple in the first set because they want to be really careful with the chest slot we've seen you know like hard and cross trap right like just the power of that card in blitz for example like there is there is power there i think they want to be careful of it and so but this this card's really interesting to me i, I think uh like you say you're gonna if you're expecting any kind of ninja mirrors it's immediately in your deck is is a wide kind of you know boost dash in the format it's going to be in your deck right mm-hmm. definitely uh, I'll let you talk about this next one, Brennan. Surgeon <laughs> Aether Tide. Bring us into, uh, you know, what, how, what are your feelings finally getting a, another wizard weapon? We've, had, we've got a few now. We've got, uh, what, four wizard weapons now? Five? Five wizard weapons. Yeah, but uh, some of them are kind of bad. <laughs> so, Surgeon Aether Tide, this is a wizard weapon staff, two hand. Uh, it says once per turn action, two resources, deal one arcane damage to an opposing hero. Go again. This is the first wizard card with go again, but. Uh, the first card you play each turn with an arcade damage effect. Uh, instead, it deals that much arcane damage plus X, where X is the damage dealt by Surgent Aethertide this turn. So, I mean, this kind of looks like a, I don't know, it seems worse than Kraken's Aethervane initially. I mean, and of course you have Crucible of Aetherwave, which uh, is an instant speed and costs one less, but... The thing that gets me interested about this weapon is plus X. So that could be future proofing on the templating, but does make me think that they might come out with some effects that help you increase the damage that, Sur- that Surgeon Aether Tide does. Yeah. Um, I thought that initially, and then I remembered that if they did that. Kraken's Aether uh, Bane would be broken, yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. So uh, I'll hold my breath on that one. I think this is more about templating, to be honest. And this card effectively says, you know, Crucible of Aetherweave is one cost plus one to your next card, right? Mm-hmm. This is you're paying an extra resource to effectively deal an extra damage, but get plus one still. So, you 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 know, it's kind of like Crucible, uh, you know, you know when you buy a new phone and they're like, hey, do you want this, like, you know, like this normal size version that's already massive and is already going to do the job for you? Or do you want this plus version, which like has these extra features? That's kind of what Surgeon Aethertide is to me at the moment, but we'll... We'll see where that goes. I do just want to point out as well, it's the first weapon with Go Again, but there is a couple of wizard cards that have Go Again, right? Um, Stir the Aetherwinds, for example. Yeah, I feel like this is like the Huawei version of 
um, crucible. Don't <laughs> knock Huawei. <laughs> I'm actually, I don't know. This card, I feel like we need more. We need to see more of the Dynasty set in context. It doesn't immediately, it doesn't immediately sort of pop out as like this is going in my wizard deck um, over crucible. Yeah. What's your thoughts on the Marvel art though? It's very dark, I would say. I mean, it looks dark on my screen. I was, I didn't know if that was like a resolution thing or something like that. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's not a lot of color to it. But I don't mind it. I mean, I it know. could, it could look better in person. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, I'm really interested to see what they do with Wizard. We've already seen some two somewhat unusual cards come out, right? Uh, the you know this one with the weapon, and then also this sort of uh, aura effect that bumps your 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 next wizard, and I think it pops on the following turn. Um, so I think we're going to be expanding the sort of the design space for how a wizard can potentially be played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Blessing of Ether, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, the card you were talking about. Um, let's move on to the last card we're going to talk about. And there is, there is a few more that have been previewed this week. Uh, I, I recommend going and checking out... Uh, I'm going to... I always get this wrong. Is it Fab Rary? It's like library and Fab, right? It's, a, it's the, the database deck builder that you can uh, use online. And they've got a, a Dynasty spoiler list, actually, which is where I've, I've just pulled this from. But the last card to talk about is the November Armory Kit uh, Bramblefell promo, which is Predatory Streak, which is a... This is at red that we've seen this. Uh, not sure if there's going to be a yellow and blue version as well. I assume there would be, based on the, the wording of this. But it's a Ninja Action, Defense for 2, and says, Create three Crouching Tigers in your Banish Zone. You may play them this turn. Go again. And the big question, of course, is... What are Crouching Tigers? Yes, I have zero context, and I know a lot of people have had a lot of fun speculating on this. I have not. <laughs> but all I, all, I, all I wonder is, uh, is about Hidden Dragon, to be honest. I think that this is the, que- the question that's big. I first thought also. Yes, yeah. if Crouching Tigers are here, Hidden Dragon must be the finisher to, uh, to said combo. Is that, is that, is that Jitli? I always, I always... Gosh, I don't um, know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Dynasty Preview season is going to continue. I think we're going to see a few more Marvels. Looks like it's going to trickle in. I've seen a few people say they've got cards to show this week. Uh, and then, of course, week after next, the week of Worlds is Preview season. Do just want to shout out again. Our preview card is on November 2nd. Um, any, any, any hints? Because any, any, you've seen our preview card now, Brendan. I know you got it in the mail. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be showing that. We want to give anything away. Can we give anything um, away? So what I would give away is it's a majestic, it's an absolute staple, and yeah, I think that decks that uh, run cards of this type will run three of this card at the very least. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably all we can say right now. Probably. Um, all yeah, but it's definitely one hundred percent a staple just based like just from the math value. To be honest, mm-hmm. um, so there we go. Yeah, play what a lead in today's podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, elsewhere in the news, do you just want to shout out? There's a, a few things that have been announced for Worlds, including a dev challenge. I'm not sure if you've seen this, Brendan, but if you uh, finish 9th to 16th, you will get an invite to this devs challenge. I think they're calling it Dance with the Dev Ills. You know, huh? play on words there for <laughs> fabtcg.com. Uh, so a lot of the devs are going to be at Worlds, which makes sense. I think, in fact, maybe the whole dev team or at least a big chunk of the dev, dev team. So a lot of the original uh, devs of the game, six of them are going to be there. And then there's invites to the remaining top 16 to, so not top eight, so 9th and 16th of uh, Worlds to to form this event, which is going to happen on the Sunday, coinciding or potentially at a slightly different time. I haven't seen the exact details to the top eight for the world championship so that should be interesting there's a gold foil legendary and some cash on the line um so just a, i guess a, some like a rapid charge second chance for ninth to 16th and you get to play against you know players that don't really play the game publicly so mm. it's gonna be a spectacle to watch as well i think i, I hope they record some of these games what format well, is so. it uh it's class constructed uh yeah i was gonna say if it was blitz um i would ask mr jason chung actually open invite jason chung Brian Gottlieb, all of them, uh, they can play KO, and if they win, I'll give them my gold storm striders. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, why be careful with that one? Um, <laughs> there's also two slots for community members, I think, being given out. I want to say, I can't remember how they're giving out the last two slots uh, because it's a 16 player event. Um, so eight from the top 16, six devs, of course, and then two. I think they're from like side events. So if you're playing in like particular side events, you can actually get an entry potentially to this event. So that's really, really cool as well. Um, yeah, each of the Friday and Saturday classic constructed daily doubles uh, gets you a chance to to get into those. So 
very, very cool. Um, also want to cover there's at, at the World Championships, they've now announced there's a, a judge conference and um, that's happening, I think, on the, the, the day before. Really cool to see that they're wanting to help upskill the, the judges in Flesh and Blood. And I think that's been a, obviously a conscious effort over the last few events. If you are interested in that, I would recommend going and checking out on fabtcg.com. Maybe you're a level one, uh, level zero, level two, whatever it is, and you want to get involved with this, then uh, all the details are there. Battle Heart in Columbus this weekend. Brennan, you already talked about it. 10K at Round Games. Uh, you're going to be casting. What are you looking out for this weekend? Is it's class constructed, right? So we're going to see we're going to see maybe a bit of a, a hint of towards what we might see for worlds. Yeah, for sure. I'm um, particularly interested to see how Icelander does. Um, Icelander won the U.S. National Championships and then the SEG Con at a hard. And there actually wasn't a lot of Icelander there, um, and it did not perform well. So I'm interested to see if, if Icelander sort of comes back. Uh, if not, I think that we're going to be in a more old him. Uh, centered format in terms of like the ice pillar of the format i think it'll be more old him than icelander but um probably the marquee of the events i think is this combo five deck that peter brought to seg con uh in dallas i think that that deck will start to be wildly wi- widely adopted um it might become actually the deck as we head into worlds i would not be surprised mm-hmm. to see that as the most popular deck Cool. Looking forward to seeing some coverage and I guess your mug on the coverage as well. Mm. Uh, I want to give a shout out to 983 Media, Tan and Grace, Matt DeMarco and Uber Shouts for this Goliath Gauntlet series that's happening right now. If you haven't seen it, it's uh, it's awesome. It's such a good, I think, initiative that's happening between now and Worlds over the next couple of weekends. Both Brendan and myself uh, have been playing in this event. Uh, my game's already been streamed and is available to go and watch. It was the first weekend or the first day of the of the Goliath Gauntlet uh, over at 983 Media. You can go check that out. Uh, interesting game. And Brendan, I think yours is being, your your first round is being shown this coming weekend. Mm-hmm. Mine was also an interesting game. The funny anecdote from it is that uh, me and Caleb, or better known as Majin Bay, played one match where we recorded, and it lasted about, it was an Icelander, Bolander mirror actually, it lasted about 10, 15 minutes, which is extremely quick. Trade and damage. We both had almost no idea what was going on in the mirror. We turn off the cameras and we're like, want to play another? Which is very unusual. I would like, I am a big, I'm kind of a snap node. You want to run it back for funsies kind of guy. (laughs) And we did it and it lasted about 70 minutes and it was just an absolute chess match and grind. Um, We learned so much over those two games. It was was incredible. It's funny to see though, this, the difference in the dichotomy between the two games that were. Uh, effectively back to back but yeah uh, caleb's a great guy and an amazing legends of run to terror player and i would i would go on a limb and say an amazing flesh and blood player as well yeah yeah agreed um so yeah go and go and check it out i think the series is really cool uh i won't i won't spoil anything from my game but um my game was i think actually ended up being a little bit longer than that but um <laughs> it's my favorite match to be honest of the whole thing i loved it what's yours no no yours <laughs> Yeah, go check it out. Uh, new deck tech is up on the Arsenal Pass uh, YouTube page. As we record, it's uh, probably dropped about 24 hours ago from when you were listening to this or potentially could be listening to this. Speaking of Goliath Gaunt, uh, I have shown the Reinhard deck that I played. I really enjoyed playing this deck. As Brendan well knows, I spent probably the first few days before we got into proper testing or the first week in a bit revisiting Reinhard. As I, Brendan, you can attest, basically every time a new format comes around, what's the first thing I go to? Is Reinhard viable? I uh, think it's just, it. uh, what's a C-tier deck? And then that's it. Right, our dash. Yeah, <laughs> dash might be better than Rhino, <laughs> I think, probably in this meta. Um, so, yeah, did end up playing this Rhino deck. I think it's quite a spicy deck, I think, and you can go and check out this uh, this deck tick that I did for that. And, of course, the guide is available, Cyber Guide deck guide is available uh, on the Arsenal Pass Patreon. But for this time, I didn't tell you this, Brendan, but I've, I've decided to do this because I think it's a great way to showcase what we do on the, the Patreon. Is Actually, this one is available to anyone. So you can actually click through on the link. It's a public post. You can see this uh, deck tech and cyborg guide for this Rhino deck that I've done. And you can just, you know, maybe you're not a Patreon. Maybe you want to know a little bit more about what we do with these deck guides and deck techs when we do one or when we have a guest come on and they write one for us. And you can see kind of what this is all about. It's a full cyborg guide and um, some matchup notes, etc. And some more notes about the deck that aren't covered in the deck tech just due to time. So, uh, yeah, I recommend just going and have a look and, and um, see if you'd like what we put out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's kind of it, Brendan. Just yeah, last 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 one. Shout out to all of the Arsenal Pass patrons. Uh, thank you. And uh, I think we've got some cool stuff coming in the very near future, which I think we're gonna probably 
release potentially to patrons first. We haven't decided yet, but we've got some stuff coming. Uh, I don't know timelines, but that's all safe now, right? Yeah, it's a boxing match between me and Zach Bunn. Hey, Bernie. <laughs> all right. Let's, go let's, uh, let's get Michael on here and let's head into the main topic of the pod. All right, everybody. We are joined by Michael Hamilton to talk about today's main topic of the pod, which is mathematics in fab or fab math. Um, welcome, Michael. Thank you for joining us. Uh, obviously, we are big fans of yours. I think we have you on here more than any guest at this point, <laughs> if you include deck techs. Um, you're definitely sort of, I think you're pioneering, uh, pioneering sort of a, a new way of looking at flesh and blood. And this is reflected in a lot of your decks, whether it be old him or your recent, uh, your recent bull ender list, but a more quantitative way of looking at, uh, at the cards uh, rather than sort of this boomer or traditional way of looking at more focusing more on synergy rather than just pure quote unquote value. Um, you've taken that, that sort of philosophy to major success since you started the game. And I think that we all have something to learn from you at that. So to introduce the, uh, can you just introduce this sort of this idea of math and fab or value and the value of a car, the value of a turn cycle, uh, however you would like to sort of jump into that. Yeah. So basically flesh and blood, it's like a giant game of math where you're trying to get more value out of each of your cards than your opponents. Each turn you each get four cards. Um, so if each of your four cards is worth more on average than each of their four cards, you're probably going to win the game. So the easiest way to take the value of a card is how much damage it does or how much life it saves you. So if you look at a card like red scar for a scar, it if you are behind, then it does four damage if you play it to attack and it doesn't take your action point. There's no extra real cost there. It's just four damage for a single card. And that's a pretty good rate most of the time. Four damage for a card is generally higher value than most constructed decks get out of their average card. But like obviously, like the ceiling is much higher than four damage for a card, and the floor is definitely lower. If you look at a lot of other cards that just like block for three, when you block three with them, you're getting three points of value because it's saving you three life. And yeah, that's kind of the basis, basic way to value a card. And then your total value per turn is like the value you get from all four cards in your hand, how you use them and how much life they save you or damage they deal to your opponent. What what would you say is the average value or sort of the, I mean, maybe even the quote unquote intended value of a hand in flesh and blood? Is it something like 12, right? Three times, you know, Four times three, four cards in hand, all block for three. You have a value of 12. Is that about average? I think for limited, it's around like a good limited deck. You're trying to get around 13 value per hand. Um, basically, each card's worth around three, and then your action point's usually worth one point because uh, a lot of like base rate cards like red, wounding blow, the zero for four with no go again. That's kind of just like at rate, you spend one card for one card in your action point for four damage, or Raging Onslaught Red is another example. Where you spend two cards in your action point for seven damage. So, a good limited deck is around 13 per hand cycle. And then, Constructed obviously pushes that quite a bit higher. You look at like 14 plus damage per turn cycle with, from an average Constructed deck. Yeah, what do you think? What do you think is the threshold that constructed decks actually need to strive for nowadays? Because I think in the past, um, I remember at actually the first, the first constructed calling me and Sasha, and we were looking at you know the current mid range decks available and p- potentially playing an aggro deck. We would have done anything to find a deck that could hit fourteen consistently. Um, I think nowadays uh, that fourteen value might be a little low for for the uh, top constructed decks in the meta. Yeah, I would agree that 14 is probably a little low for like, if you look at the top aggro decks like Briar and Fi, they their average undisrupted four card hands put out reasonably more than 14 damage. Obviously, some of their weaker hands do less than that, but like their big hands do significantly more than that. Yeah. Um, so, oh, go ahead. No, I was saying that that's that's super interesting, right? Like the, the the actual number value you're giving to that, I don't think people sit down and, and break that down very often for 
even just an aggro deck, which is like probably probably you'd say like level one to where you could do that, right? Like it's it's if you play four cards out, that's really obvious, right? It's on the it's on the face of the cards. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I guess an example of maybe maybe not an average Briar hand, but a pretty good Briar hand would be a fused red Bramble Spark, which is worth four, into red Earth or Surge, which is worth uh, five, but it costs two resources. And then you play one of your many zero for fours. I wrote down Snatch in the show notes as my example, but it'll get go again from the embodiment and it's going to come in for four points of value on its own. And if you ignore the on hit, then you can just say it's four. And then Rosetta Thorn as the last action is four. And you spend four cards there and you deal 17 damage. And that's kind of a pretty good Briar Hand. And that's ignoring the on hit from Snatch. But that's uh, kind of like what the constructed decks are looking for their best hands to do that kind of damage, which is ends up being 4.25 damage per card. Yeah. And this is 17 damage. Uh purely off attacking right so purely off aggression do you think in flesh and blood that the ability to defend with cards in hand and to quote-unquote fatigue has become less effective because the aggressive sort of value that you can get out of your hand has become so high right so we see a play there that actually isn't too unreasonable putting out 17 we had things like channel mount heroic onto that we see numbers much much higher uh they you know you're, you're, you're blocking for three is kind of a standard block value. There are some zero for fours and defense reactions, but it does seem like maybe the aggressive start cards are starting to outpace the defensive values uh, offered by a lot of cards. Yeah, and a lot of the defensive cards do kind of get there in terms of value. If you look at staunch response, it's two resources and a card for seven blocks. So if you can convert that last resource off a of blue pitch into one more point, you're getting two cards for eight points of de- defense, which definitely rivals this pretty good aggressive hand. But the problem is that these defense reactions are so narrow. You can't, like, if I just present a bunch of damage to you, maybe it'll be broken up into several small chunks. Maybe it'll be one big chunk. Whereas staunch response it can only cover up one attack. So that one attack has to be for seven damage. Otherwise, you can't, you won't get full value out of your card. It's, you can see that with it. I think Rosetta Thorn's a really good example of <clears throat> how, to, how split damage is so impactful. In, in a game like Flesh and Blood and what you just talked about, Michael, as opposed to being on the offensive versus the defensive, Rosetta Thorn is always going to split that damage up and, and force your opponent to deal with it. And the defensive cards aren't, you know, you can't have that decision to split stuff up. It, it's not it's not as easy. I actually wanted to, because Brennan, you talked about something at the start. This uh, You said it's a boomer thing to talk about uh, synergy. and But I actually think like, like even you go like pre-boomer, I want to say pre-boomer, you know, we're talking like turn of, turn of the century stuff here. It was about like the value you could get out of your cards. That's what Welcome to Wraith was about. But if you could find 13, 14 on a turn cycle, you were like cheering, you know, like I think you talked about fatigue just then. Fatigue was like a real thing because the defensive cards haven't really changed that much. Like they have a bit and you've got hero abilities that change that, you know, think Ultim, but you know, we had sync Below's, we had unmovables, we had Staunch Response, we had all these cards. Uh, it just... You know that the output on the other side wasn't wasn't really there, and I think that's um that's what's changed about the game now is output on offense is, is a lot higher. Average card value on offense is a lot higher. Does make me wonder if Drone of Brutality would still be as uh, as impactful if it existed today? Still be pretty good, I think. <laughs> I I was not around for Drone of Brutality. I think it wouldn't be as dominant now as it maybe or as powerful now as it was back then. I'm not. I don't think it leads to great play patterns anyway, though. So if it is good enough, it seems like a bigger mistake to have it be legal than not. Yeah. So, Michael, say I say I, I'm I'm kind of grasping this concept now, like even from a very basic level, right? I'm looking at the cards in my hand and evaluating sort of my turn cycle value. How do I utilize this strategically? And what am I trying to do in a game of flesh and blood to um, take that concept and employ it most effectively? So... Your goal is to maximize the damage per card you get while minimizing your opponents, or the value per card more than the damage. So aggressive decks mostly, they're just mostly just trying to play out their hand in the most optimal way possible. They don't usually block as much because usually they're getting more than the two or three points that it would get for blocking on offense. Um, There are some pretty big exceptions to that if you're playing an aggro deck and you have a card in arsenal and they play command and conquer suddenly you're like looking at your two cards that block for three that would probably be worth four points each on offense but maybe it's worth giving up those two points of value because you'll protect this arsenal card and if you lose the arsenal card it's probably going to be worth 
the Arsenal card's probably worth more than two points of value. So suddenly it's more efficient to block with them. And you just like have to calculate that out, that kind of thing out for everything your opponent's doing. You look at your hand initially and you're like, what's if my opponent doesn't present any on hits and I can just use my hand as efficiently as I want to, how can I best spend my hand? And a lot of the time that's blocking with zero or one cards and play zero cards or one card and then playing your cards out offensively. And so that's why on hits are kind of effective against these aggro decks that are looking to play bigger hands. You saw at the Pro Tour in Leo, you saw a more aggressive version of Oldheim doing very well against the Briars of the field because they were playing a bunch of on hits and forcing Briar to block with her hand that she didn't really want to block with because they were worth more points on offense than defense. But these on hits basically made it so they were more efficient to defend with them instead of attack with them because the cost of letting the on hit effect happen was more than the value you'd get from saving the cards for offense. Do you have a way of quantitatively evaluating a card like Command and Conquer? So it's effectively a two card six, right? But there is a disruptive effect. Do you va- like, is there a numerical value that you assign to that disruptive effect? Because of course it is also sometimes irrelevant, right? The opponent does not have an arsenal or something like that. Uh, would Command and Conquer be a two card for six or would you maybe consider a two card for seven or for eight? Like how is there a quanti- quantitative way of like really just kind of bringing that down to the numbers? So when I'm putting it in my deck, you know, I'm trying to look at the value of my hand uh, rather being 12 because I have something like Command and Conquer, what I consider like 14 because they affect. I think it, I, I would still consider it two cards for six, which is actually below rate because it's two cards in your action point for six. And that's part of why it didn't end up in my ice center deck is because it's, uh, I think it's below rate basically compared to these other cards. The upside of it disrupting your opponent's turn is very powerful though. And rather than saying that you're getting value out of that, it's really contextual based on like what your opponent wanted to do with their hand. So maybe your opponent has an arsenal they care about and they have two, three blocks that they want to block with on the card, if they wanted to block with those two, three blocks anyway, if that was the most efficient way to use their hand, say maybe they're like a Bravo or something and they want to block with two cards and swing at three for seven or swing at Anathos or something, then you're not getting any extra value out of this on hit from the Command and Conquer. When you are getting value is like the example I gave earlier where the Briar has to block with two cards that would be worth four damage on offense and they're only worth three blocking. So it's really hard to give a blanket statement for how much value this command and conquer is worth it's literally just you're two cards fixing them and then you're also causing them to use their cards less efficiently a lot of the time Mm -hmm. what do you think about decks um that play a package like belittle and in order to facilitate playing something belittle minimalism they play you know maybe like yellow snatch like some of these cards that are definitely below rate but they satisfy blue's cause and allow the uh, the player to go fetch an additional card in the form of minimalism so belittle by itself is a pretty crazy rate it's either one resource for six damage split up between the attack and non-attack getting a red minnowism, or it's basically negative two resources for three damage and, and a card. And both those rates are very, very good, and that's why Belittle's seen a lot of success over its lifespan, I guess. Its continued lifespan. And because it's so... It has a lot of deck-building requirements as well, and it doesn't always get the full value out of it, but the ceiling of belittle is very high and that's kind of why it's good i think on rate you can just always say that belittle is worth what it's worth when you're doing the thing where you're getting you're getting your minnowism and getting full value out of it so i would say belittle is worth it's probably worth one or two points more than like your average constructed level card but the way you figure out if belittle is worth it in your deck is you look at all the cards you're playing instead of the better cards and is Belittle giving enough value to warrant basically making those sacrifices? And that's kind of an ongoing question in many different decks. But it also depends on how much you have to block because if you're in a format where your opponent's presenting a lot of on hits, suddenly Belittle looks a lot worse. It blocks for two and it really it really needs a two or three card, sometimes two if it's an arsenal, two cards plus an arsenal, but it really needs a three card hand to like do anything basically. So Belittle's value kind of fluctuates based on how many important on hits there are in the metagame, I think. 
It's like a, it's like a contrast to Command and Conquer you just talked about before. It's like the opposite side of the spectrum, right? Because actually, I wanted to go back to the Command and Conquer piece because I think it's super interesting the way you talked about that, and it's something that I think I've thought about in the past. But I want to elaborate a little bit more on with with you, Michael. Is like you play the CNC, you say it's two cards to six, right? It takes your action point. I think the thing that on the other side of it for your opponent is okay, and you see it's contextual to your opponent, but I think you can have a little bit of, from my perspective, I think you could probably have a little bit of numerical value to to a degree, depending on what you're playing. So if you know that you think you're playing a Sabrina, they can on average make their offensive cards worth with four, let's say, uh, based on what you're talking about before. You know, I think you said four point two five in that in that Briar specific turn you, you showed. If you're able to force them to block to protect that card in Arsenal, that's going to offer them say four four point two five damage, whatever it is. Uh, now you've taken two cards from their hand and reduced the value to three, right? So you, your your CNC is you could some ways say look at it. Well, you've you've paid two cards for eight, right? You've you've saved uh, potentially two damage on the f- offense. And on the flip side, if they give up that card and they just take the six damage, what's the value value of that card? You could probably say it's somewhere between two to three, right? That you've just traded for. So again, you're, you're trading up, and that's where the impact of CNC comes in on the flip side of that, which you just talked about, right? I just want to go back to that because I think you made an amazing example with, with Briar and I feel like you can make the flip side on, on CNC. And I think, uh, Brendan, I don't want to jump ahead, but the value of a non-hit effect, I think is one of the most interesting and hard to grasp concepts in this game. I think you snatch CNC, whatever it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I want to, I sort of want to dig into what is your process, Mike, when you go to, when you approach building a new deck, so I think a good example of this is the Icelander deck, a what looked like on the surface level a very synergistic deck, right? Um, what's the balance between synergy? So, I mean, some cards I would look at in the Icelander deck that are kind of purely based off synergy would be something like Frostex, right? Like it now is somewhat niche useful with the aggra- the Ultim decks getting very aggressive, and you know it does it forwards this sort of combo game plan. But uh, you know, you added a lot of cards into uh, into that deck that that were just pure value, right? Like Fandel's Fighting Spirit Red, Wounded Bull, uh, Sink Below. What is the balance between sort of I'm trying to get the the most quantitative value out of my hand turn by turn uh, versus how much of like a synergistic game plan do you want with the rest of your deck? You know, you want like X number of ice cards to fuse with. You want to be able to play your, your Aether Ice Veins. You want to be able to combo. You want X number of blues. How do you balance that? Oh, there's, small question. There's, small question. There's not really an easy answer to that. It's um, basically you like me and Roger kind of just did an episode on deck building on the Manor podcast, and we kind of talked about this stuff a little bit. But like your goal when building a deck is kind of figuring out what your weakness is. And one thing that kind of led me to cut Command and Conquer from Icelander was the deck was not lacking in disruption. It had plenty of disruptive effects, and a lot of the time when I switched to uh, finals fighting spirit and wounded bull, people would still block those with two, three blocks and just take one or two damage. Whereas if I was playing command and conquer and they'd block that with two cards then I get no damage through. So it was just, they're, they're already very encouraged to block it out because of the extra disruption that Icelander has at instant speed from arsenal is if you keep your hand, you don't know if you're going to be able to get full value out of your cards. anyway. So there's like, extra risk to doing it and at that point if your opponent wants to block your attacks anyway you might as well just play the more efficient attack rather than the on hit as far as synergy versus power i think you'd basically try to find the strongest cards that fit the synergy role and then you compare those to cutting the synergy stuff and just playing raw power and you honestly just have to like look at play the way i do it is i play games with both versions and i see which side is getting me better rates throughout the course of the game like one example of synergy would be in the old time deck where we had command and conquer with pummel with the tunic counter that's a very powerful synergy but it's also like that because the synergy is so strong you get there you're well above the rate that you would need for a combination of cards to be good and you can kind of just look at the rate that you get when you assemble the synergy and then Look at the fail case of the cards in a world where you don't have that synergy. What are the cards doing? Well, Red Pummel is blocking for two, so it's pretty bad, but you can still use it with some of your other cards. It doesn't have to pair up with Command and Conquer. You can still play it with Endless Winter or Choke Slam or Spinal Crush or Erase Face or lots of other cards. So it's probably good enough to warrant. And then Command and Conquer is 
it looks pretty good in Oldheim because Oldheim just wants to slow the game down. He wants your opponent, if your opponent's blocking with two cards for six, then that's not a great rate, but that's getting you closer to your second cycle, getting you closer to Oak and Old fused, getting you closer to getting your pulse to get your combo react and get lots of value. And it's also getting you closer to fatiguing your opponent, which is a threat that even the more aggressive Oldheim decks still have over their opponent is they kind of threaten to fatigue them. And because of that, I think both pieces are fine on their own. And then the combination of having them together is very, very powerful. Yeah, definitely. Um, so do you want to take us through some kind of specific examples, specific you know, deck and card examples to, to sort of hammer home what this, what these sort of, what value looks like, right? Um, you know, we've talked about kind of a few scenarios, but I think a, a few more might help sort of solidify how to evaluate a, a four-card hand during a turn cycle to see if you're getting more value than your opponent. Yeah. Um, so one example would be, uh, I should have wrote down his last name, Dan Rakowski. Yeah, that's his last name, yeah. Okay, Dan Rakowski's <laughs> spy deck from Nationals. And it had a lot of different ways to... Uh, a lot of different ways hands could play out to be like very efficient. So first, this kind of comes up in limited five, but it also in his deck, it has a ton of ways to do a two-card hand for seven damage where it plays a zero-cost starter into Searing Ember Blade and to pay one to get back the Phoenix Flame, attack for one. So that's two cards for seven damage. If you block with your other with your other two cards and there are three blocks, then you're getting 13 damage from a hand cycle. That's not great, but it's fine. Now, if you take that two card seven and instead of blocking with maybe a lava burst instead you play lava burst at the end you're playing the lava burst for five extra damage so you've got you play your zero for three starter and then you pitch a blue to attack with searing everblade you get back your phoenix flame and then you attack with lava burst that's worth 12 damage now and, and that's three cards for 12 if your other card blocked for three that's a four card of hand of 15 value and Additionally, equipment kind of factors into this. If you have Tiger Stripe Shuko, suddenly the lava burst worth one extra damage on top of that, and it's a four cards for sixteen points of value. Yeah, and which that... is something that Fi can do pretty consistently if he has a lava burst and a zero for three starter and a blue, which isn't that's not a huge ask. That's what the deck's built to do. Yeah, so it's hitting. It's sort of <laughs> relative. Like it's real. It's almost average turns are hitting those values while it has this sort of nuclear opage at, at the same time where it plays something like an Art of War and, you know, reaches these kind of ridiculous amounts of damage it's able to put on the opponent. So yeah, a very, very efficient deck for sure. What are your thoughts, just, just to quickly get your thoughts, because we have you here, <laughs> what are your thoughts on the, the recent success of the sort of Mask of the Pouncing Links and quote-unquote combo Fi deck that Peter won uh, Battleheart in Dallas with? Have you had a chance to see that list yet? Uh, I'm honestly not super, not very familiar with it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll be interested to see because, I mean, Mask of the Pouncing Links, it seems like as an equipment uh, can can be quite strong. Obviously, you have Mask of Momentum there, uh, threatening the draw, the draw trigger, Mask of the Pouncing Links often being worth, um, almost always being worth more than five damage as a permanence that sits on the battlefield. Quite powerful. Six is a good number. Yeah. To start on the, fo- on the field. <laughs> Getting a Lava Burst or Assault the Wounds on uh art of war turn is usually worth about six so yeah how would you evaluate uh how would you evaluate art of war specifically i think art of war is actually one of the most powerful cards in the game uh specifically it costs one resource and then you play this art of war and you banish a card but you're drawing two cards so it kind of replaces both the art of war and the card you banish outside of chain or other decks that care about the banish zone like chain and levia break it even further but in a normal deck where you're banishing a card and playing a card and spending one resource to give your whole turn plus one power and draw two new cards. So it kind of goes one resource for plus one power on every card you play this or every attack you play this turn. So the cards that you draw are random. So like it kind of, it can be harder to most efficiently use your hand. Like maybe if you knew those were the two cards you draw you'd block with one of those two cards if you could, but you can't do that. So you won't always get full value to the two cards you block. But you can say that Art of War is one resource for however many attack actions you play that turn is how much value you're getting out of it. And on top of that, 
it also can help push through on hits or even be a combat trick on that first card or hit, make breakpoints even more awkward. But I think the easiest way to look at it is just you're spending one resource, you're breaking even in cards, and you're dealing one damage per attack. So it's probably worth, if you play four attacks that turn, it's one resource for four damage, which is one resource is about a third of a card. So that's essentially valuing it at one card would be worth 12 damage, which is very, very powerful. Far above the rate of anything else. Michael, I want to ask you just while, while we're here, I want to segue and, and Brennan, uh, if, if uh, you want to leave this further down the line, then please do. But you talked about breakpoints just then and out of what helping breakpoints. How how do you value breakpoints in Flesh and Blood? I think it's it's a question that people ask, even if they don't know they're asking it, I think. They're probably uh, subconsciously asking it when they're looking at cards, when they're looking at their draft decks, when they're looking at their constructed decks, their blitz decks. This idea of breakpoints, and I think you, you just talked about uh, Dan's deck, the the fire deck, that's predicated around a lot of breakpoints. You know, he's got he's playing things like Soaring Strike to make sure he can get his his um, his snatch go again because it has a as a a breakpoint with an on hit effect. Like, how do you value those kinds of things in Flesh and Blood? So, a breakpoint is essentially it's not inherently worth anything because if your opponent says no blocks on it, they don't care about the breakpoint. Then you're just getting whatever the value of the card is. So if you play uh, Wounding Blow, it's zero for four. Four is kind of a weird breakpoint, but it doesn't. It's still just one card for one card in your action point for four damage. If you attack with Kadachis, then it's still just one resource for one damage, which is again about on rate for limited, a little bit worse than you expect in constructed. And these breakpoints don't matter until your opponent is blocking them inefficiently. So if your opponent spends a full card to block a Kadachi, suddenly this breakpoint was super relevant because they spent a whole card to prevent one damage, which means you aren't getting any more value out of your cards, but you're lowering the value of your opponent's cards. And you can kind of equate that to getting more value out of your cards because, again, it's like zero sum. It's just like you're winning each turn cycle by X amount or losing each turn cycle by X amount. So like reducing the value of your opponent's cards is very good. It's basically the same as getting more value out of your cards. But in a vacuum, your cards aren't... Like, having breakpoints isn't actually worth anything naturally, if that makes sense. It's just when your opponent needs to block them because they have an on-hit ability, like Red Snatch attacks for four, and if they don't block it, you're going to draw a card. Uh, Red Mounting Anger attacks for four. If they don't block it, you're going to give something plus one damage, so it's worth an extra damage if it hits. And... Go ahead. I want to ask you just on that. How big is the difference between a red and yellow snatch then? I know Brendan talked about yellow snatch before, talked about red snatch. How big is the difference then? If if the if the break point inherently is is worth nothing, how how big is the difference of that card? Is it just is it just one difference then in terms of value? In a vacuum, it's worth one damage. If you look at a lot of the decks in the format, and maybe they don't have a lot of one block equipment that they want to throw in front of snatch, they don't have a lot of cards that naturally block for four, like Brother in Arms and Sink Below, then suddenly this one point of damage is frequently making your opponent block with two cards instead of being able to single card block it. And then if they're blocking with two cards or they're blocking with a three block and a two block piece of armor on your on your snatch, you're getting a lot of extra mileage out of that one damage break point. But it's very contextual based on what tools your opponent has to block it. So if you're against a deck with Three copies of Sync Below, three copies of Fate Foreseen, three copies of Brother in Arms, and a bunch of equipment that blocks for one, then it's just worth one damage. It's not worth anything else. But in those spots where it does cause your opponent to block with two cards or block in a way that is makes their cards more inefficient than the yellow snatch would, then suddenly you're getting you're reducing the value of your opponent's turn by a lot more than yellow than you would, which is worth value. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I, I kind of look at it as paradoxical. I think it, it's so. It depends, right? It, it, it's it's so hard to say one way or the other. But it, like you say, at face value, inherently not worth anything. But also, it could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna back up to sort of a key example, um, which is Wounded Bull Icelander. Can you talk to me about why Wounded Bull Icelander is good? Why it's uh why is it so much better than the other versions I said? No, but just talk to me about what like why is what makes that deck so effective? Um you know, putting attack actions in Icelander, not something that would have immediately come to mind when uh, picking up a wizard. Yeah, so the main reason that it's good to have these attack actions in your deck is actually just that the arcane damage spells aren't very strong on rate. You could play like 
Red Aether Hail into Waning Moon is two cards for six damage and your action point, which is not a good rate. That's not something you want to be doing in Class Constructed. Red Ice Bolt, even worse, two cards for five damage, and you need a tunic counter to make it seven damage. But if you don't have a tunic counter, it's just two cards for five damage, which is quite bad. And those are kind of the main spells you're giving up by applying these attack actions. You're also losing Freezing Point, but that card is a lot trickier because it's very contextual on how much damage you get based on how many permanents your opponent has that are frozen or how many frost fights they have and how many frost hexes they have. So that one's a little bit trickier to evaluate, but looking at the attack actions, like Wounded Bull, you spend two cards, you get eight damage. And comparing that to Red Aether Hail, where you spend two cards and you get six damage, it's just very clearly that Wounded Bull is more efficient to be attacking with. And these other cards, like these ice actions, have other benefits, like you can overpitch them to keep Channel Lake Frigid around longer. They block for three, whereas Wounded Bull only blocks for two. And sometimes you're not behind your opponent in life total, and they are, and Wounded Bull is only at two cards for seven, which is not nearly as good as two cards for eight. And then the final thing that they're better at is most of the time it's harder to block arcane damage than physical damage, which kind of jumps back into that other point of you want to make your opponent unable to use their cards as a unable to use their cards efficiently. You want to make them use their cards inefficiently. But most of the time, the most efficient use of cards is not blocking with them anyway. <laughs> as yeah. we were talking about. So. And blood. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I mean, Icelander is bringing together sort of... When, when you have cards like Wounded Bull in it, you know, it's getting this very good rate on its two card for eight, but at the same time has access to a lot of disruptive cards, right? In the form of Blizzard, Hypothermia... Um, even things like Channel Lake Frigid. And then, of course, there's, I guess, a sort of derivative of disruption is uh, Frost Hex and Combo against Hex that would try to go slow against you. So you sort of have a package to attack those other two pillars of the meta, whether it's being a, you know, like a defensive ultimate deck, which is going to try to fatigue you out, or, you know, a go again deck, which is, you know, Fi, Briar, Chain, uh, no, not Chain anymore, Chain and Blitz, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then, one final thing that I think but all versions of Icelander probably include, but I think it's worth mentioning just while we're talking about the rate of cards. When you play a Polar Blast or a Cold Snap from Arsenal on your opponent's turn by pitching a blue, you give them a Frostbite, and then you have two resources floating to Waning Moon. So you're getting a Frostbite and three damage for pitching a blue and playing a card, but they both draw you a card. So you're pitching a blue, playing a card, and replacing that card. So a Frostbite and three damage, you can say that Frostbite's worth one resource for your opponent, that's pretty pretty efficient. That's probably worth about four points of damage. So both those cards are also very efficient. Mm. So there's a... Uh, you know, I hesitated to actually... To, to not paraphrase this, but I guess I'll say verbatim off your notes. It says, Reinar sucks, and only boomers like to play him. I feel like that was directed at Hayden. Do you want to sort of defend that statement? Why is Reinar bad? So I did not say Reinar sucks. I said Reinar struggles in a lot of metas. And so political. <laughs> I think uh, so. Reinar has a mechanic called Intimidate, where ideally you are taking away your opponent's cards they want to use to block and causing them to be inefficient because of that. And when you intimidate cards your opponent wanted to block with, maybe they have several three, like maybe they want, maybe they're playing a Bravo deck and they want to block with three different three blocks, and they want to use their last card to swing in at those for four. And when you intimidate two of those three blocks that, that he can now no longer use to block, suddenly his game plan has to be different, and he maybe his turn becomes less efficient because of that. And Reinar's intimidate mechanic is very good in a metagame where people have specific cards they want to block with and specific cards they want to get back to their turn with. But... As far as I've, as long as I've played Flesh and Blood, most of the decks in the format are trying to play four card hands fairly frequently. And because of that, a lot of the time when you intimidate some of their cards, they're like, well, I wasn't going to block with that anyway, so I don't care. And if you look at just the raw rate on some of Reinar's cards, I think one that springs to mind is Alpha Rampage. You, it costs three resources and you discard a card. So it costs 
the a blue card because it's three resources. It costs a random discard, and then it costs itself that you're playing, and it costs your action point, and it attacks for nine, and it intimidates once or twice if you trigger Reiner's hero power. But if that intimidate's not worth anything, spending three cards for nine damage, three cards in an action point for nine damage, that's even a little bit below rate for limited and constructed. That's definitely not where you want to be. So blocking with maybe you block with a three card or a three block card and then do that. You're getting 12 value out of your four cards, 12 value out of your turn cycle. And that's not going to compete with the things that other constructed decks are doing. And I think that's part of why Reinhardt struggled quite a bit is unless this intimidates really interrupting your opponent's plan and causing inefficiencies, most of Reinhardt's cards aren't good enough. You know, but if I put on my sort of, uh, you know, copium glasses here, I would say, but uh, Bloodrush Bellow, Swing Big, Romping Club, you know, these are above rate. These uh, few cards that my class has access to. Yeah, and all three of those cards are very, very good and very, very powerful. And a lot of Reinar's best turns involve Blood Rush Bellow or Swing Big or a combination of both because they're the best rate you can get on a card or on cards in Reinar. If you look at <laughs> Blood Rush Bellow, I was talking about how Art of War, you're spending a resource and two cards to get two new cards and give all of your attacks plus one for the turn. Well, Blood Rush Bellow is the same thing, but it's plus two for each card for the turn. So if there's any broken card in Reinar, it's probably P- Blood Rush Bellow because it's just a better version of Art of War. The problem is when all of your cards are one or two points below rate anyway, getting this plus two on everything looks a lot worse. My, so yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, my theory is that Hayden uh, plays Reinar and you know quantitatively, he may be getting a value of 10 to 12 out of his hands and trying to keep up with the other the other big boys in class constructed but he is able to make up that difference with happiness you know so it's a plus <laughs> it's a plus three it's a plus three to plus 3.5 so he's he nets around you know occasionally um a 15.5 turn which is a win right hayden uh i would say you know and depending on the build you can you can knit that a bit, a bit more frequently the, the problem is like <laughs> michael said it is like it's the it's the on hit uh sort of sorry the break point discussion from before it's the same thing with intimidate intimidate is a mechanic that has uh, a natural value to it like i i think in you could use boost as like a, a, a example to go side by side like boost gives you go again gives you an action point which is like worth something in a deck right like that you can like a lot more quantitatively try to like hold on to what that is intimidate really doesn't because like michael said uh either maybe they don't care and if they if they don't, then your and your mechanic, which you've paid value for, because look at the the rate of return on cards in in brute, like that anything that says intimidate on it, there's there's value taken away. So like a um, a smash instinct, right, is a three for seven red, but it's a class red. So it really, it should be three for eight, but it has intimidate on it. So you're paying effectively like one damage for that intimidate anyway. And if you're getting nothing back for it, you just handicapped yourself. I think that's what you're talking about a little bit about to sort of below rate there's cards that are below rate but then you know there's there's cards that are above rate and there's things that you can do above rate you come in with a a romping club so you play a a two card hand red barrage and beat down pitch your yellow come in for romping club potentially that's a two for eight but also uh potentially it's just two for six because your opponent blocks with two six blocks uh two three blocks or worse it's you know they just throw two two blocks at you and they don't really care about them for example so there's such a wide like range of where brute complaint it's really hard to play consistently um i will small plug the deck that i played in the goliath gauntlet was a bit more based on i think being a bit more consistent just because this meta kind of rewards it a bit more i think and intimidate can you know if you say to your opponent you don't get to play the last turn of the game because you actually make your intimidate worth something you can make your intimidate worth each intimidate can be worth three to four damage on the last turn of the game because you deny your opponent the ability to block with that card that is huge that is where intimidate really shines but yeah, I mean, you know, six, seven, eight of the nine turns of the game when Intimidate doesn't matter, that's what that's what hampers Reinar and you lose value over the game. So it's what it is. Romping Club, though. Romping Club is above right, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us. I know personally I'm actually I'm actually most excited to to sort of dig deeper into this concept and apply it to limited. Because while I do think that I have done that in the past, I didn't explicitly look at value in limited i would probably try to go for a bit of synergy a little bit too much 
And I've, I've definitely found recently, at least in when I played Blitz this past week, and it did feel like, um, it felt like the most unfair thing I could do in Blitz was actually do the most fair thing and just get plus one or plus two over my opponent on a turn cycle. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I think that concept will absolutely be, uh, like, to be 10 X in something like, in something like limited. Yep. Uh, you, you can go and apply it and, um, then everyone won't call you a dirty five forcer, Brendan. I don't force fi. I want to force fi, but I ended up playing Icelander and losing. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, but you can use the math for next time. Yeah. Anyway, Michael, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. This is, I think it's really interesting as I think yourself um, and people like Michael Thing have really been pushing this concept uh, farther and farther and showing us how powerful it can be. Um, I still remember the calling Orlando when Hayden walked back from his round whatever match and comes back and tells me that he got outplayed by some Michael Hamilton guy. And I was like, okay, <laughs> whatever you say. Um, but it, it was pretty clear that even back then, this was sort of your eth- the ethos behind your deck building. Uh, so very, very strong concept. And yeah, I know, I know it's something that Hayden and I are incorporating more and more into our deck building. It's not something we weren't before, but I think a re-emphasis and a refocus uh, does us very well. So thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you back on the channel soon for uh, maybe a deck tech deck guide as soon as you uh, world champion Michael Hamilton, maybe. <laughs> that would be nice. I'll fight you for it. Yeah. <laughs> or Hayden can win. That would be cool, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank, thank you both for having me on. It's always fun to come on here and chat with you both. Awesome. Uh, do you, I want to give you a chance to shout out any of your socials, um, your podcasts, all that good stuff. All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hades blade. And then me and Roger do Roger Bodie do the manor podcast every week. It's another flesh and blood podcast aimed at helping you just get better at the game. And yeah. Sweet. Well, I'm going to keep you on here while I close it out. So there's going to be no Google review for this week. But if you do want to submit a review and get it read out on the podcast, you can do that. Ratethispodcast.com slash Arsenal Pass. Um, we do really appreciate them. It helps a lot with SEO. Uh, check out Arsenal Pass on YouTube. Like I said, deck text, deck guides. Occasionally, you'll see Michael Hamilton on there. Um, recently had the Rhinar deck tech go up. So check that out. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Brendan APG. Hayden is at Fiendel, F-I-E-N underscore Dale. Um, tweeting about all kinds of fab stuff and then finally just a big thank you to the Arsenal Pass patrons and if you do want to see Hayden's deck guide for the Rhino deck it is available completely free on patreon.com slash Arsenal Pass so go check that out anyway that's all for this week see you all in the next episode see you later